This is The Guardian. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This week, we're focusing on Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. What exactly are they offering us? Well, something... Something bold, something modern, something hopeful. Labour is way ahead in the polls and seemingly has its best chance of taking power for 25 years. Older listeners may remember what happened back then. A new dawn has broken, has it not? We have been elected as new Labour and we will govern as new Labour. Now, Labour will have to deal with a very different public mood. Weary, downcast and cynical. So, how can it successfully get through the next 18 months? What will its plan for government look like? And if Labour wins, what will that feel like? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and Stuart Wood, a.k.a. Lord Wood of Anfield, the former Labour advisor to Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi there. Uh, let's just start off before we get into the serious, deep stuff of politics. Uh, with the World Cup, the focus of a great deal of hand-wringing and, uh, and notes of dismay about Qatar's human rights record and all the rest of it, which miraculously seems to have largely evaporated <laughs> now the tournament has got going. I don't know whether either of you are still feeling ethical qualms or avidly tuning in, which way you fall, or not tuning in at all. My main role is wandering past in the background while my husband and son are watching and saying, what colour are we again, basically? But that's, that's about as far as my engagement in football goes. OK, I quite envy you in certain respects. Stuart, you, you presumably are tuning in somewhat yeah, avidly. I'm afraid I'm one of those people who just watches every game and I, I've done, like, remember the Likely Lads episode ages ago when you, Terry avoided the score for ages and ages? Well, I'm like that. I kind of record games and put my head down on the bus and the tube, get home and watch it at 11 o'clock at night. I mean, I'm completely... It's like it's my connection with being a kid again, I think. That's what it is. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm like that. Gabby, uh, so does your indifference extend to the idea that you won't be tuning in on Saturday when England play France? Even that will leave you cold. I was going to say, are we playing France? But that would be bad. <laughs> ah! <laughs> <laughs> my main thing that I'm interested in and I'd like to be mansplained about for hours quite happily um, is why all the countries that no one used to think kind of were no one good at football are beating all the predictably good countries. I'm I'm very interested in this. I am no football expert and I only, I only am interested in international competition. I don't pretend to know much about football at all. But I, my, my understanding, the reason that there were several uh, shock results early on in the tournament was because it's happening at this time of year. 
And so teams haven't had time to prepare and a large element of randomness therefore intrudes. Is that your understanding, Stuart? You know more about it. I mean, there's a bit of that. I think there's a bit of the heat maybe as well, although the, air, the stadiums are bizarrely air-conditioned. But the randomness really only applied at the group stage and now we're in the knockout stage. There's hardly any randomness at all. And that's pretty much the way World Cups usually pan out. Even more of a reason, Gabby, to completely ignore it. <laughs> My remaining shred of interest gone. Yeah, forget <laughs> it. Right, let's... <laughs> Let's move on then to what we're here to talk about. Uh, today we will be discussing the Labour Party, which is now consistently 20 points or so ahead in the opinion polls and apparently gearing up for government. In the new year, we'll do an accompanying episode about the state of the Conservatives and conservatism. But this week, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, helped by an up-and-coming new talent called Gordon Brown, announced his plans to scrap the House of Lords and thereby do Stuart out of a job. Uh, and push, push forward. You'd look forward to that, and push forward greater devolution. So this seemed like quite a good time to look into Labour's other plans, who's who in the shadow cabinet, and how Starmer and his team are going to navigate their way from now till the general election. So I wanted to talk first of all about Labour and the public mood. At the start, I made reference to Tony Blair and the mid nineteen nineties. There was a mood of optimism back then, which Blair and New Labour, I think, very successfully tapped into and channelled into their political project. It was a sort of very giddy, celebratory time. Cool Britannia, Britpop, all that stuff. 1996 European Championships. Um, And Labour felt like it was part of something bigger. The country had already left the Tories behind, culturally, you know, to all intents and purposes, the Tories were a spent force. And Britain was in a new mood. I actually wrote a book about all this, still available from all good um, bookshops. It's hard to imagine... Something like what we're about to hear happening with Keir Starmer. This is Noel Gallagher at the 1996 Brit Awards. (laughs) There are seven people in this room tonight who are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country. That is me, our kid, Bonehead, Quigsy, Alan White, Alan McGee and Tony Blair. And if you've all got anything about you, you get up there and you say Tony Blair's hand, man. He's a man. Power to the people. They were crazy days and they made him shine, as the song goes. Um, that seems sort of spectacularly absurd in retrospect. But clearly, the, the chances of anything like that happening now are nil. And a lot of that, I think, is because the public mood seems to be the exact opposite of how it was in the 90s. We all know why. There was a long economic boom back then. And now we're faced with recession, strikes, cost of living crisis, a general sort of apocalyptic feeling. The circumstances in which Keir Starmer is going to take power, if indeed he does, are going to be very, very different. Let's talk, first of all, about the, the sort of key symbolic aspect, really, of the public mood right now, which is the fact we're entering or already are in a winter of strikes, which, as we all know, the right wing press and the Tories are predictably placing Keir Starmer at the centre of. Do you think that has any ch- chance of sticking, Stuart? I don't think so, no. And I'm not being blasé about it on Labour's behalf, but I think you'll see Keir Starmer continuing to do what you might call studied ambiguity about it all because he he basically wants to be on the side of people who suffer a cost of living crisis and whose pockets are being hit and who are worried about food and heating for the the winter. It's a real worry for people not just at the bottom, but quite a way up into, into the middle income range. And he wants to be on their side. And those people, of course, aren't just consumers, they're people who work as well. So I don't think he wants to be either totally condemning the strikes because he wants to go to the centre, nor does he want to be totally on their side. So I think you'll hear him going to use the same thing he's been using for the last few weeks on Rishi Sunak. He won't go into policy critiques. He won't go into economic debates in particular. He'll just say this country can't be governed by someone who is so weak and such a prisoner of factions in their party that they're presiding over chaos on the streets 
affecting us all. And I, I don't think that will work as a, as a message, but I think it will be enough of a detachment for him not to be stuck with what the male want to stick him with, which is that he's the author of these strikes. High stakes, though, aren't they, Gabby, in the sense that it's not a game Keir Starmer himself is playing, and yet, you know, irrespective of one's feelings about the, about the people going on strike and why they're doing it, once you get things like ambulance drivers going out on strike, that does have the potential to create news stories that could be quite difficult for Keir Starmer by association. And also just create life that's quite difficult for people. I mean, you know, we're all going to feel it. It's interesting. I'm just looking before we came on air at some polling on exactly this question, whether Labour closest to the unions is damaging to them or not, some Delta poll stuff. And it's interesting. I mean, there's a real split between Remainers apparently tend to be <laughs> chilled about it, um, even think that it, it potentially reminds you what the Labour movement is for, you know, that, that it's a positive for Labour to be associated with the unions, leave voters, former leave voters more suspicious and surprisingly voters under 24 more hostile to unions, which I didn't expect, but that's possibly, that's a generation that doesn't belong to a union, maybe. Really interesting, there's a really high proportion of don't knows who just can't say whether or not they think that Labour's damaged by being close to the unions. And those, I think, are people who haven't had to think about it for a long time. You know, strikes haven't been a big part of British politics for a long time, don't really know what they think about the issue. And it's which way they make their mind up this winter, I think, that probably determines. But Stuart, do you think Keir Starmer's nervous? I would be if I was him. Yeah, I think he's nervous and I think we're going to see us. I think that the normal sort of mini political cycle on these things, you'll get a few Labour MPs will go on the picket lines, they'll be reprimanded, possibly even sacked if they have positions. Um, so Keir Starmer is going to have to do, well, he thinks he will have to do a few things in order to put some distance between him and an official uh, alignment between the Labour Party and the strikes. But I think ultimately the thing that will help him on this is that no one looks in the eyes of Keir Starmer and thinks he's going to get his donkey jacket on and go out uh, on the picket lines. And I think that is the thing that, 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 that his character such such as the public know anything about his character. I don't think it's easily associatable with someone who is just itching to go out there and support strikers, whatever the cause. More generally, I, I wonder what the difference is, Gabby, between winning in the middle of an economic boom like Tony Blair did, also by extension in the middle of a very upbeat public mood, and winning when the country seems to be falling apart. It's, I mean, it's the exact opposite scenario, and I wonder how that changes the politics of opposition. I think it's what you inherit that's the real difference here. You know, you're coming in, Tony Blair came in in 97 to an economy that was actually recovering. You know, you'd obviously had, you'd had Black Wednesday, you'd had the crash, but the, the economy was on the up. So you were going to have money to spend as it was. You know, you still all remember there were a very tight couple of years to start with where the Labour Party was insisting it was sticking to Tory spending plans and the party was desperate for them to go further. But, you know, there was money to play with. There won't be money to play with this time round. Both times you've had a sort of problem of needing to fix public services that have become very degraded and crumbling. That'll be the same this time. But just the amount of scorched earth. Do you think they are? That's an interesting point, Stuart, whether in the midst of all this sort of chaos and sort of borderline social breakdown, whether there will be an expectations problem or whether given how bad things have got, plus the level of sort of public cynicism and disconnection from politics, whether they won't have much of an expectations problem at all, you know. I, I, I think there will be an expectations problem. I think they know it. I think Gabby's right. It wasn't just that the, the economy and the country was recovering in, in the run-up to 97. It was absolutely booming. I think the other there's a couple of other differences. One is to do with the Labour Party itself, that Blair, Brown, Mandelson et al. did a lot of heavy lifting intellectually on working out how the left needed to adjust to a world after Margaret Thatcher. We'll probably come on to this later, but... Um, I haven't seen that in the Labour Party so far. And I think that is that is an issue at a half for Labour, which it really has to grapple with. I think the other thing is, 
strangely, in 1997, it was clear that even though Major has, was the product of a kind of coup d'etat against Margaret Thatcher, that we'd had 18 years of a Tory government. The strange thing is that there is a sort of break narrative in this Tory government, yeah. that, that Sunak looks like he's the mopping up act after the disaster of Trust, who herself was the sort of response to Johnson. And I, I think, I, I suspect out there, I don't know if polling can ever get at this, but people don't feel that there's been 12 years of a Conservative government. I think the return of austerity actually provides a unifying theme with the early years of the the early albums of the Tory government <laughs> under Cameron and Osborne, you know. But apart from that, I actually think it's harder to make people feel that there's been continuity for 12 years. And that's weirdly a problem for Labour compared to the 1990s. The other reason it's much more sort of delicate and difficult for the Labour Party now, I think, compared to 97, is that in 97, the sort of voters it needed and the constituencies it needed to win, broadly speaking, were of a type. They were Tory-held seats, in, in, in some relatively more affluent parts of England, which then gave rise to all these stereotypes like Mondeo Man and Worcester Woman and all that, and the politics of New Labour reflected that. Whereas now Starmer is really fighting on three fronts politically. You've got Tory-held places, which he needs. There's also the so-called Red Wall, which has very, very different politics. And then you've got Scotland as well. So so the, so the electoral, but you're nodding, Stuart, the electoral battle is really, really different. Yeah, it's completely different. I think Scotland in particular, I mean, Scotland is looking better for Labour than it was two years ago, but it's still not looking great. Uh, but you're right. That I, I think the thing that dominates Keir Starmer's leadership so far is precisely that he thinks the overwhelming question for him is how he can tactically respond to fighting different kinds of elections with different kinds of audiences around the country. And their interest is much more in targeted, personalised messaging than it is on here are my five principles about how Labour's going to run the country, amplified and, and broadcast to everyone. It will be a very different kind of campaign. But I think Keir Starmer thinks that his challenge is actually quite different from 97 for precisely that reason. Gabby, do you still miss that? We were talk- I mean, this used to come up every week when Labour was sort of in the doldrums when, earlier this year. We used to say, where's Labour's grand story? Where, where are its five principles and all that? Now, since they've zoomed ahead in the polls, it's less fashionable to make those points. But I still miss that personally. It's still a noticeable absence. I think at the moment they're in slightly walk on water phase because the government can do nothing right. They're to some extent playing on on easy setting and questions like that don't seem to matter anymore. It only matters that they're not this government. I think those kind of things come to matter as we get closer to a campaign and they matter also when you're in government, actually, that you have, you know, a guiding sense of what you're you're in it for. In a way, and I think that the Gordon Brown report, which we're going to come on to talk about, I think it starts to give them not those five points on a pledge card, but it gives them something that you feel has been missing up until now, which is a a sense of grand overarching vision and also the beginnings of an answer actually to the levelling up question. It's interesting that report smuggles in a lot of things that I don't think Kirsten necessarily thought he was asking Gordon Brown to do, but has got. Right. Well, let's talk about that then. I, I was going to come to the question of the so-called Gordon Brown report in the context of public trust and cynicism and that being another difference between Keir Starmer's position and Tony Blair's because although there was no golden era in which everybody loved politicians clearly there was less cynicism and disconnection around in 1997 than there is now and that makes things different just by way of a segue that kind of fundamental loss of trust in politics is something that Starmer tried to address this week when he made that speech announcing the review done by Gordon Brown which as we all know proposed a greater level of devolution in England and the abolition of the House of Lords and its replacement with a a Senate of the nations and regions and so on. Let's just hear a bit of Keir Starmer's customary rabble-rousing oratory. Labour will rebuild trust 
by reforming the centre of government, cleaning up sleaze, nourishing the relationship between central government and the devolved authorities, and replacing the unelected House of Lords with a new, smaller, democratically elected second chamber. Not only less expensive, but also representing the regions and nations of the United Kingdom. He still hasn't quite arrived at the Finland station in terms of the sweep of his oratory, but uh, I don't think he ever will, so we'll have to set that to one side. Uh, a lot of reaction to what Keir Starmer and Gordon Brown said was based on the idea that it was all, in the end, a bit pointy-headed for the public. Devolution doesn't come up on the doorstep and all that stuff. Do you think there's anything to that, that actually this would have gone over the heads of most people who are worrying about their gas bill and so on? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it, it did for a lot of people. Although I thought Keir, Lisa and Andy and others made a pretty decent case for the connection um, between what really matters bread and butter wise and, and, and the fact that power is so concentrated. I mean, Keir Starmer asking Gordon Brown to come up with a proposal for a fundamental reshaping of the Constitution of, of the United Kingdom, which is essentially what this is, is extraordinary. You know, have you got any ideas for us? Which is essentially what he did. And, you know, as someone who worked for Gordon Brown for 10 years, I know exactly what Gordon Brown thinks about this. I wrote many a speech that he never gave about reform of the Constitution. <laughs> And so a lot of what, as Gabby said, I think earlier, was what a lot of what came out in Gordon Brown's report is not at all what Keir Starmer probably had in mind. Keir Starmer, I think, wanted to show he was listening to people who voted leave, that he wanted to shift power away from London, that he wanted to reform power in London, uh, that he was prepared to be someone who gives power away, not just hoard it, all those things, and that he was different from the cronyist Tories and all that. Gordon Brown, what, what Gordon Brown wants to do is save the union. That's fundamentally what Gordon Brown wants to do. He wants to save the union. He thinks the only way to do that is to give more powers to Scotland and elsewhere. And in order for that to happen, you have to turn the House of Lords into a second chamber that's more like a federal second chamber, which represents the regions. But the most radical thing about Gordon is he's actually bringing in the beginning of a written constitution. I don't know if people haven't made this point. Gordon Brown is essentially bringing in written constitutionalization, the way our constitution works, with things like a solidarity clause that are going to be become the beginning of all sorts of judicial politics about what that means. And that's the really most extraordinary innovation in what Gordon Brown's brought about here, it seems to me. And is that, do you think, I mean, it clearly is, I suppose, why you got a sense that the Labour leadership, the Labour establishment was standoffish about this? Because as we know, this is now being put out for consultation. Yeah. which wasn't the hype surrounding it three or four weeks ago. Three or four weeks ago, it was they are going to do this, right? I think they wanted fresh thinking on uh, a, a new approach to devolution and uh, also devolution of Scotland, but a new approach to shifting power away to towns and cities in England, plus a reform of cleaning up the acts of central government. That's the sort of territory they wanted to be in. They, they asked Gordon Brown, who for 40 years has been thinking that we should be more like James Madison and you know, a formal constitution for the United Kingdom, like, like the founding fathers moment of the United States. So they've got way more than they bargained for, I think. And the interesting question is, as you say, how will they deal with this you know, brown eye edifice that they've, en they've ended up presenting to the public? Let's talk now just a, a bit about uh, what the Labour Party would be like as and when it took the reins of government. Um, Keir Starmer has said very recently that he accepts the idea of a big fiscal black hole, the same as the government does, uh, and therefore stringent limits on public spending. He laid the ground, really, for that in his conference speech this year when he said this. Here's some more sparkling Starmer oratory. But we have to be honest. I would love to stand here and say Labour will fix everything. But the damage they've done to our finances and our public services means this time the rescue will be harder than ever. It will take investment. Of course it will. But it will also take reform. 
you know, it would be nice to think of a Labour government as the cavalry coming around the corner, but it's a cavalry that isn't actually going to be able to do very much, isn't it? Which is, that's a thing for the Labour Party to have to manage. It's a cavalry that's a bit short of horses, to be honest. It's, it's fair guns. to say some of it is on foot and, yeah, it's carrying sticks instead of guns. But, I mean, I, once you're into that game of, of expectation management, Labour has to say, what do you do realistically? What do you have to make people feel instantly that something's changed, something's better, there's a bit of hope that's been going forward? If there's not vast amounts of money to spend, you look at redistributing what you've got and then you have, you know, policies like VAT on private schools, which they've been talking about a lot recently, is one way of demonstrating both that, you know, you have some kind of moral labour principles, but also that you can do more with the with the money you've got. I wonder whether they're going to start toying with the idea of saying, you know, making explicit that it's going to take more than one term to fix public services. Do you have to say, you know, this is this is a long-term job, you know, it's taken years to break them down to this point. But I think the crucial thing is essentially being able to refire the economy to the point where you look like you can deliver something. Stuart, sort of within the Labour family, certainly as far as the trade unions are concerned and the public sector trade unions in particular, there is going to be an issue here, isn't there? We all know the state that the health service is in. We know the state that education is in, looking more widely, the state the care sector's in and so on. The idea of a Labour politician standing there having won an election saying, look, sorry, for the time being, there's no money, is going to be a hell of a thing to manage, isn't it? Yeah, it will be difficult to manage, but also unavoidable. And I suspect they'll do a version of what Blair in much better times did in 97, what Blair and Brown did. First two years, tough decisions, stick to spending limits get through the pain so that by the end of the first term, you're into a slightly sunnier upland, uh, able to release a bit more money, the economy hopefully recovering by then. Uh, and they'll, they'll have to do a, a kind of austerity version of that first half, second half of the term. And it's a difficult, difficult act to pull. That's a very, a very interesting prospect. Let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll be looking at the key figures in Keir Starmer's top team, including Keir Starmer himself, and what they might need to do to win. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. Thank you for still being there. Um, one of the biggest criticisms of Keir Starmer from inside the Labour Party has been that he has no really clear political story and a somewhat flexible set of beliefs, if you're being generous, arguably. Um, as a former director of public prosecutions and human rights lawyer, he is a lawyer by training. So what he believes in and his vision of how the country ought to change are sometimes 
rather hard to pinpoint. It's worth, therefore, discussing who Keir Starmer is or might turn into. So far, he's mostly defined himself against Jeremy Corbyn and what the Labour Party was between 2015 and 2019. And Corbyn himself, it seems, is now being sacrificed to make all this clear. Here's um, Keir Starmer speaking to Michelle Hussein on the Today programme on Monday. Do you believe that Jeremy Corbyn will be the Labour candidate for Islington North in the next election? I don't see the circumstances in which that can happen. Um, obviously, we've not got to the selection of that particular constituency yet, um, but I don't see the circumstances so in which Jeremy soon, Corbyn will stand as a Labour uh, a candidate. Uh, I'm not, now, I'm, I'm making the following point, not in terms of uh, my own sort of political take on it, but just sort of analytically in the context of history. It's quite an astonishing, unprecedented turn of events that someone who was the leader of a political party, the leader of the opposition three years ago, now has to be thrown out of the same party so it can win in the eyes of the people now leading it. So we definitely know what Keir Starmer's not or what he wants us to think he's not, but that still leaves open the question of who he is and what he wants. Gabby, what's the answer to that question? It's funny, isn't it? I always find it very hard in some ways to define Keir Starmer, and yet I find him quite predictable. Can you go on, explain that then? Well, you've got a reasonable sense of where he's going to be on any given subject. I can guess from what I know about him or from what I've seen so far, you know, where he's going to be on a lot of things. I think it's good. And I think that's probably why he gets away with it in voters' minds. He is a sort of amorphous kind of vague, don't really know what he what he thinks or stands for people say about him i mean i know i take what you mean you say about you know it is sort of objectively astonishing that a former leader is no longer a candidate and yet to labor's target voters you know expunging jeremy corbyn from the record doesn't look mad it looks probably like the sanest thing labor's done in a long time if you were a, a labor voter who switched to voting tory in 2019 it was probably for a large part because you didn't like the look of Jeremy Corbyn. Now he's gone. You know, that has removed an obstacle to you coming back. That does not seem astonishing to that target voter. But I think... Wait, might, hold on. It might do to, to a lot of young people, for example, who oh, voted God. Labour in 2017. Of course it does. If you're if you're the other side of the base, it looks mad. He was what drew you into the party. Or maybe he wasn't what drew you into the party, but he was what made you feel the party had come to its senses. But in the nicest possible sense, you know, those are not necessarily the voters that Keir Starmer is chasing at the moment, which is why I said target voters. You said that you feel Keir Starmer is sort of recognisable. You know where he's going to go. I don't know whether you can do this, but recognisable as what? So on what basis do you sort of know where he's going? I think he's a soft left progressive who um, has to look like a soft right progressive to get into power, who wants a country with decent public services, reduced inequality, you know, recovering economy, more at ease with itself and has become, has shifted over the last few years as he's realised, I think, the thing that all... Labour leaders that I've ever covered have realised, with the exception of Tony Blair, who knew it to start with, which is the country is not quite where the Labour Party is. And you have to reconcile yourself to how much you're going to compromise with the bits where it's it's not like you are, you know, and we saw Ed Miliband go through that phase, saw Gordon Brown go through that phase during the transition from Tony Blair, you know, and, and now he's going through it too. OK, talking of Ed Miliband, Stuart, you ran Ed Miliband's 2015 campaign. You were very central to his operation. Sort of by comparison, I suppose, what kind of political brain do you think Keir Starmer's got? I think he, I mean, I think there are three people important in Keir Starmer's political life, which are Tony Blair, uh, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn, you've talked about before. Boris, because I think he defined himself as the integrity candidate against Boris for so long. And that was so much of his definition that when he went, I think that gave Keir Starmer a bit of a problem. Right? He copies a lot of the Tony Blair tricks, although I think the Blairites would rightly say that the PR genius of Blair was on top of an edifice, which was actually much more intellectual and thought through than just a bunch of PR tricks. And I'm not sure yeah, Keir Starmer's yeah, done yeah. that 
part of the rethinking what it is to be on the left side of, of things. But I think I think you know, he he said in a couple of meetings I've been at with Labour Party folks, he said, um, I, I'll be I'll be I make no apologies for the fact that between now and the election I'll be taking the advice of people who know how to win elections. Um, and I, I think the open bookness of Keir Starmer on this might be an advantage in government, but it might be a problem in the run up to an election. I think even people who don't like Labour want to know what their Labour leader stands for. And the interesting question is how Keir Starmer goes about doing that in ways that don't alienate the people from different parts of the country that he needs to be on his side. Yeah, yeah, I get the impression he'd rather not do that. And in fact, when he's asked those sorts of questions, he, ten- he tends to questions, he tends to look quite nervous. Um, it's been said, Stuart, that Ed Miliband is, is quite influential on Starmer and his operation. Is that true? Well, I mean, it's definitely true that in the last few months, a lot of Labour's chunky policy has been in the Ed Miliband sphere. And partly that's to do with the nature of the crisis we're in, the energy crisis with climate change with COP. I didn't see any evidence that he's sort of running policy behind the scenes across the piece. Um, Gabby, you, uh, I'm told... Recently interviewed uh, the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, for Grazia magazine. Um, what can you tell us about her? I'm told, can't believe you're not a Grazia reader, John. I mean, Rachel's... I read it occasionally, I'll have you know, when I'm in the queue in Lidl. <laughs> Rachel's interesting. I mean, she's obviously, she obviously holds a pivotal portfolio. You know, Grazia's interest was in her potentially being the first female Chancellor, because it is odd that that's the only remaining glass mm. ceiling. You know, we've had a female Prime Minister, but never had a woman in the, in the money job. But she's also, she's... Of the, I would say she was the closest in the shadow cabinet to Starmer. She's much more experienced politically than he is. You forget he's still an evolving and maturing politician. You know, Rachel is a teacher's daughter. She's really anxious to get things right. She doesn't want to be in trouble. She does not, you know, she's not a rebel or a sort of rule breaker. And both of them have a sort of, a, you know, a cautious approach to things. But when they feel confident of where they are, where they get there slowly, but when they get there, they can make quite big moves, I would say. And that's common to to both of them. Where's the centre of gravity in the shadow cabinet? I mean, I suppose, you know, if you to be crass about this, you could say there were there were sort of different poles, P-O-L-E-S. You know, West Streeting seems very sort of Blairite. By comparison with Lisa Nandy, say, the shadow levelling up secretary, who's from a more sort of orthodox left background. And then you've got someone like Angela Rayner, who it seems to me is sort of classically Labourist. She She's sort of just left of the centre, but extremely pragmatic, but sees her politics through a sort of moral prism and all, all that stuff. And I, I wonder if you take those three as representing different strands of the party, which one's the most dominant? Because, as you say, Keir Starmer, on account of his inexperience, it seems to me he's more easily influenced, perhaps, than, say, Blair and Brown or Ed Miliband, for that matter, were. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. more sort of keen to, to to take the advice of the people around him. You could have said the same about Blair's first cabinet. You could, you know, that there were all sorts of different sort of polls represented in that and, and kind of power fluctuated between them. It does feel like the West Street, you know, not just West Street, actually, Pat McFadden, I think, is more influential than he used to be. You know, there are sort of older Blair hands and newer Blair hands who probably have more nodding at power than they used to and even someone like Angela Rayner you know as you, you're right she's you know she's to the left or center of that but she's one of the vanishingly few people in that shadow cabinet you know who can talk a good game and did during the Corbyn years about the Blair government she's about the only person in the Corbyn shadow cabinet who could say the word Blair without kind of you know making the sign of the cross and kind of sort of hiding because she she was able to praise, you know, that sort of new Labour thing right the way through. She's quite a unifying force in some ways. Stuart, you, I was going to say, you mentioned uh, the lack, really, of loads and loads of intellectual substance, this idea of a wider project, perhaps, you know, the voices of think tanks and all that, that we had in the early new Labour period. There was a measure of that with Ed Miliband, there was a measure of that with Jeremy Corbyn as well, things like the IPPR being quite influential. 
So if we look to the Shadow Cabinet for a bit of intellectual heft, who do you think is the most interesting Shadow Cabinet member in that sense? Lisa Nandy's just got a book out, for example. Wes, I think, has got to have a book out in a few months as well. I mean, everyone seems to be having a book out. Ed had a book out. Ed Miliband had a book out last year. That's uh, the way to go. Um, Matt, Hancock's, Matt Hancock's got a book out? They're yeah. All so I, I guess think... Dharma's supposed to have a book out at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, not as good as John Harris's book, obviously, but we, we talked about that before. That's taken as read. Talking about these different polls, as you say, Wes Streeting, Lisa Nandy... Angela Rayner, Ed Miliband. He's been very clever in channeling their radicalism on the things that they are slightly off the centre on, as it were, from him, into things that don't cost lots of money. I mean, this was Lisa Nandy's week in a sense that this project about decentralising power and putting power back into towns and cities, that's a very Lisa-ish sort of project, right? Angela has become the interrogator-in-chief of the government on sleaze and crony corruption and COVID, and she's very good at it. Ed is obviously on the green stuff. So I think in the run to the election of, of those lodestars, I think Wed Streeting's the one who's probably going to become, who's going to be happier in inverted commas about the things that Keir Starmer does. I think Keir Starmer's going to run a very Blairite last two years of the campaign. Okay. That's an answer or a, or a partial answer to one of my last points, really, which is the question of imagining it where we are two years hence and the Labour Party by some miracle. And it will still be quite miraculous. You know, the Labour Party has to win a majority, has to win Basingstoke to get a parliamentary majority, has to win Hexham, you know, seats that I think I'm right in saying uh, it didn't even win in 1997. You know, the job it has on is still pretty onerous. But let's let's imagine that it wins. And that question then of what it's going to do, really. There have been quite a few policy announcements so far about all sorts of things. Scrapping of non-DOM status to pay for the recruitment uh, and training of doctors. Been quite a few announcements about childcare and education. Bridget Phillipson has talked about completely reimagining the childcare system. As we know, uh, tax benefits for private schools would be scrapped, which uh, I think the money from that would be diverted into state education. There's stuff going on. But if someone asked you point blank, you know, what would be the defining sort of opening measures of a Labour government in two years' time, Gabby? And what we know so far, what would you say? It's interesting because when I was thinking back to the pledge card thing in, in 97, which is what everyone thinks, oh, you know, they had these five definable things they were going to do. And, and by that, you knew them, you know, and, and some of them were very totemic, very bread and butter things like class sizes. You know, some of them were sort of very specific targets, you know, for improving the processing of young offenders, but they weren't necessarily huge ideas. And actually, a lot of the huge sort of defining ideas of New Labour came either as a surprise after the election, like Bank of England, you know, or, or evolved kind of as they were going along. So I think they're still a way away from that kind of five point retail offer. But some of the things, you know, train more nurses and doctors is obviously going to be their sort of symbolic policy that stands for we'll spend more money on the NHS. They are very making one very explicit commitment there, not saying we're going to pour billions into the NHS. I think we're going to get sort of quite limited specific offers that are meant to symbolise a greater commitment to that area. So sort of limited specific offers in the midst of what's likely to be a moment which still feels riddled with crisis, right? And, and huge national problems and so on. And so uh, the sort of last question I wanted to ask you really was what you think it'll feel like, right? I remember 1990s. I mean, this is just because I'm a person of a certain age and all that, and I've got Oasis and Blur records, and I can get a bit boring after two lagers about all that stuff, right? But I, I remember that moment very clearly. I remember what I felt, and it was as emotional as it was political, right? And it seems to me that the emotional aspect come Labour within the election in two years' time is going to be much less pronounced. It's going to feel much more nervous and tentative. 
That's my answer to that. I don't know what yours is. Stuart, first of all, what do you think it'll feel like? Yeah, I, I, it won't feel like, at, not that I can remember, Atlee 45, obviously, but it won't, it won't be like Atlee 45 <laughs> or Blair 97. It'll be much more like I imagine Wilson 64 was like in the sense that it'll be a thank, thank goodness we got rid of that lot, but hard work begins now. But I don't think it's going to feel like, like a, a new dawn has arrived, has it not? Right. So more like waking up at sort of half three in the morning and hoping the milkman will eventually arrive rather than a new dawn. That's a very laboured analogy. But, um... <laughs> it's very laboured and exactly right. I think it's going to feel more like Cameron in 2010 than anything else, you know, for a different set of people than would necessarily have welcomed Cameron in 2010. But it all depends on the size of the majority. If it's a whopping great landslide majority, then maybe you will feel that kind of euphoric, oh my God, the world has turned upside down feeling and, you know, looking at all the Tory cabinet ministers who've lost their jobs kind of feeling. But I think it's going to be more like when Cameron took over in quite a sober, you know, woohoo, yeah, this is great, but we've got work to do. And let's be very um, sober and serious about it. And I want to be clean and my party to be clean and, and you know, to be different from the sleaze that went before. You know, I think that's the tone you're going to get. A bit earnest, very earnest, good son-in-law material type prime minister rather than, you know, sexy prime minister, if I can put okay. it that way. An earnest new dawn. And if that's not something to look forward to, I don't know what is. Right, on that note, uh, we will leave it for now uh, and return next week. That was a fascinating discussion. I'm sort of of the opinion that we need to be more interested just because the prospect of a Labour government is becoming such a thing now, you know, that we need to start talking about this and and, and being interested and and really getting into the the deep detail of who they are and what they're going to do. And that's what we really did there. So thank you very much, Stuart and Gabby, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, as I always say, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably not an earnest one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 